0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on April 3rd, Lord's Day service. go ahead and begin, so I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations rage, but your wrath comes. The time of the dead to be judged is coming, and the time for rewarding your servants is also coming. The prophets, the saints, and all those who fear your name, both small and great, and we pray, Father, this morning that as we study your word that we would be found as those who fear you and who desire to do your will. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome to April Sunday School. Uh, we're calling this class Studies in Biblical Theology. There's going to be a few different teachers in the coming weeks and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the very end. So today the main goal is to establish a framework for organizing the bible and if if you've been around for a while we have actually taught this lesson before in the very early days of TRC so you know if you were here at the very beginning you may have heard this lesson taught it's it's a study in covenant theology and what we're trying to do here is establish a framework for organizing the bible and This is completely necessary because this is a big, thick book filled not with regular pages but with onion leaf pages and so there are many words, there are many books in the Bible. We've got 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. It's a lot of material and so we need some sort of way to think about this book, some sort of way to organize this book, some sort of way to enter into this book. And so we're gonna try to establish a framework for organizing the Bible. And realize also that in doing so, this is really one of the last things Jesus did before he ascended to be with the Father. So you might remember in Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Jesus there with the two men. They're talking about the events that had happened in recent days. And then Jesus begins to teach them the Old Testament he says this familiar verse in Luke 24 27 and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself and what it seems Jesus is doing there is he's providing this overall framework for understanding the Bible and it's all moving in the direction of the Lord's Messiah The Old Testament is all moving in the direction of Jesus Christ himself. And when you look at that verse, Luke 24, 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And when he says the scriptures, what is he referring to? The Old Testament. And so, according to Jesus, what does the Old Testament refer to? refers to himself. The Old Testament refers to Jesus. But that's not entirely clear. And what exactly does it mean to say the entire Old Testament refers to Jesus? I mean, is Jesus mentioned by name? Is Jesus of Nazareth mentioned by name? Well, not exactly. But remember back to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus gets up in the temple and he reads to the people a passage from the prophet Isaiah and he says to the crowd, this is Luke four sixteen through 21, he then says to the crowd, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus began his ministry by citing scripture and saying that that scripture is fulfilled in himself. And when Jesus says here in the Luke 24, 27 passage, at the end of his ministry, that the Old Testament refers to himself, he's saying that his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection have fulfilled the Old Testament. And so we know that the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus of Nazareth. And. It's giving us the background of God's plan for the redemption of his people. The Old Testament is giving us the background for what we'll call the history of redemption. And in John chapter 5, Jesus says that the point of searching the scriptures is that we might, that you might come to me. That's what Jesus says. The point of studying the scriptures is for us, as those who read the scriptures, to come to Jesus. And again... When Jesus says that in John chapter 5, the scriptures also refers to the Old Testament. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to provide a framework for organizing the Bible. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture in your mind a very large building. Now if you need to close your eyes to bring about this imaginative thought, feel free though the person next to you may do something strange to you without you looking. But nevertheless, if you need to close your eyes to spark the imagination, do so. But I want you to picture in your mind a huge building. And the building is beautiful. The architecture is breathtaking. And I don't know what you've pictured. Maybe it's a mansion. Maybe it's an old cathedral. Maybe it's a castle. Whatever it is, it's huge and it's beautiful. And it's so huge that you could spend days exploring this building. It has rooms, big and small. It has multiple corridors. It has towers and balconies, many different staircases, even a few hidden passages. Okay? you got the building in your mind. So you're walking now up to the building. You come over the hill and the giant building appears. It's some ways off, but it's so big and it's so beautiful, it's captured you. And so you're walking towards the building. And as you walk towards the building, approach the building, you start to realize, okay, this is big and it is beautiful. It has lots of angles to it. There's many different ways you could approach it. You could approach it from the front. You could approach it from the side. You could approach it from the back, and as you get closer to the building, you've decided I'm going in. And as you get closer to the building, you're now trying to decide how do I enter the building. Do I go in the front? Do I go in the side? Do I crawl through a window? How do I enter the building? There's many different ways you could enter the building. You've got to decide which door to enter. Now, if you haven't figured it out, the building is the Bible. And you're welcome to keep your eyes closed, but but the imaginative portion is over. The building is the Bible. And we all have to decide when we approach this big book, how are we going to enter this building? How are we going to enter into the Bible? And I want to suggest to you that the best way to enter is through the front door. I want us to go through the front door of the Bible, and the idea of covenant is the front door of the Bible. Or if we can just dispense with the metaphor altogether, because metaphors have their limits. The idea of covenant is the establishing framework for organizing the Bible. And so, If you're going to understand the main point of the Bible and if we're going to understand that, as we saw earlier, the entire Bible, the entire Old Testament, is pointing us to Jesus, then we must, I think, enter into the Bible through the entry point of covenants. Now many of you here have done that. Many of you here in your mind have organized the Bible and structured the Bible and thought about the Bible through this framework of covenants. And so this is probably old hat to you. Maybe though some of you are here and you haven't really thought about entering into the Bible that way, so I want to invite you to enter into the Bible through the entry point of covenants. And so then, what is the idea of a covenant? What is the biblical idea of a covenant? Well, if you've never viewed the Bible from the purview of the covenants, I encourage you to begin thinking of the history of redemption through this lens. And here's here's the starting point definition for covenant, kind of tailored to the biblical story. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. In its simplest expression, that's what a covenant is. It's a binding agreement between two parties. But it's also a little more than that. It's a binding commitment on those who are entering into a relationship. And so a covenant is a framework for establishing a relationship between two parties. And so what I've suggested to you is that we need to organize the Bible through the framework of covenants. And so you might think, okay, but why? Why should we start with covenants? So I want to give you four reasons, very quickly, four reasons why we should start with covenants. The first reason is because covenants are the bridge from anthropology to soteriology. Covenants are the bridge from anthropology to soteriology. And if you're not familiar with those words, they're really easy words. Anthropology, anthropos is man, ology, study of, so anthropology is the study of man. Soteriology, Soterios means salvation, ology means study of, soteriology is the study of salvation. Okay, so covenants are the bridge between anthropology and soteriology. Or, Or more simply, covenants are the bridge between man and salvation. God always enters into relationship with his people through a covenant. In other words, God relates to his people through covenants and God provides salvation for sinners through the design of covenants. And so that's the first reason we want to start with covenants. It's the bridge between man and salvation. The second reason we should start with covenants is because covenants structure and organize redemptive history. Covenants structure and organize redemptive history. Redemptive history is just the history of redemption. It's the history of salvation. It's the history of God coming to earth in the form of a man and saving a people for himself. And covenants structure and organize redemptive history. Covenants order both creation and redemption. And also it is covenants that are used to delineate the biblical historical periods. Covenants divide up the different historical periods in the Bible. Of course we see the Old Testament and the New Testament. The next reason, next reason we should start with covenants is because covenants unify the scriptures. The covenants unify the scriptures. As we said earlier, the, the Bible's a big book and it's also a unique book. It's written by dozens of human authors inspired of the Spirit. Those authors wrote over a span of a couple of thousand years across different areas of of the earth. How can we say this is really a unified book when there's so many authors that span such a vast amount of time? Well, the covenants provide that unity because of their singleness of plan. And what we'll see is that the Old Testament shadows are explained by the New Testament realities and all of that comes to life through the covenants. And the fourth and final reason that we should start with covenants is just the fact that covenants account for a lot of material in Scripture. The word covenant appears over 300 times in the Bible and and that's including both the Old and the New Testament. But more than than that, covenant usually forms the focus of the passage or the entire book of the Bible in which it appears. And so, there's several reasons why we should start with covenants. But now, let's think about some of the covenants in the Bible. What are some of the covenants between God and man in the Old Testament? What comes to mind? What are some of the covenants between God and man in the Old Testament? Of life. What, Daniel? Alright, God's covenant with Noah, that's right. Covenant of life. Yeah, the, and what are you referring to there? Uh, creation. Okay, yeah, the covenant of creation, that's right. Sometimes called the Adamic covenant, right. It's got a lot of different names. Covenant of life is one of my favorite ways to call it, you know, to describe it though. Abraham. Yeah, God's covenant with Abraham. Bijan, you stole, you stole the answer from a child. <laughs> <laughs> the Mosaic Covenant, that's right, God's covenant with Moses. There's one other big one in the Old Testament, God's covenant with man. Yeah, it's his covenant with David. Okay, So let's think about some of these just chronologically. Okay, Let's start with God's covenant with Noah. We'll skip, skip the Adamic covenant for now, it's kind of complicated. <laughs> uh, but let's start with God's covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant sometimes called the Covenant of Preservation. And why do you think it might be called the Covenant of Preservation? Well, the world is being preserved. And so in the Noahic Covenant, the emphasis there is on God preserving the world after you know, the flood, after the judgment of the flood. And God gives the rainbow as the sign of that covenant that He will preserve the world, that He won't flood the world again. And in so doing, God is creating the conditions on earth so that redemption can be accomplished. Okay, so we've got the Noahic covenant. Then chronologically, what comes next is the Abrahamic covenant, also called the covenant of promise. And the Abrahamic covenant, the emphasis there is on God's promise to Abraham to make a people for himself through Abraham. Then we've got the Mosaic covenant covenant. You can also call this the covenant of law and the emphasis there is on God giving the law. God is creating the nation of Israel to be distinct from all the peoples of the earth, to be holy and in giving that law it shows us our sin and it shows us our need of God's grace. Then we've got the Davidic covenant. You can also call this the covenant of the kingdom and in the Davidic covenant the emphasis is on establishing the king as the covenantal mediator. And and we see there that this king will be a son of David. And then there's the new covenant. And we could call this the covenant of Christ. And the emphasis in the new covenant is ultimately fulfilling all the previous covenants by providing the anti-curse. And so there we have, we've got the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and then the New Covenant. So there's five covenants, four, especially focused in the Old Testament, and then the New Covenant, the Covenant of Christ, is largely what the New Testament is about. And so what I want you to do is I want you to see how those five covenants relate to each other. I want you to see that ultimately there is a unity between those five covenants covenants. And and the unity of those covenants can be seen from two perspectives. The first is there's a basic structural unity to the covenants. And then the second is that there's a basic thematic unity to those covenants. So let's first think about the structural unity of those covenants. Now, first off, what do I mean by that? What do I mean there's a structural unity? Well, ultimately, I just mean the covenants are structured the same But more than that, I'm saying that the covenants all contain interrelations in how they are arranged. They all contain interrelations in how they are composed and in how they are administered. In other words, they overlap. And they don't just overlap, they interlock with each other. In such a way that you can say that the covenants basically are one. In fact, many theologians just call it the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace has all of these covenants as single parts of that. So the covenant of grace includes the Noahic and the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Davidic and the new covenant. And in this, that then means that as one covenant is given, but then you know time passes and then a new covenant is given, well, the new covenant that's given, lowercase in there, The newest covenant that's given doesn't replace the one that came before it. And so, in other words, the Mosaic Covenant, when it's given, it does not replace the Abrahamic Covenant. And the Davidic Covenant, when it's given, it does not replace the Mosaic Covenant. You see, when the covenants are given, they don't replace the one that came before. They supplement the one that came before. They further the one that came before. So, start with the Abrahamic Covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant first seen in Genesis chapter 12, God was setting aside a people for himself. He calls Abraham out of the land of Ur to form a people for himself. But then when God introduced the next covenants, the subsequent covenants, he wasn't replacing the Abrahamic covenant and starting over. Rather, each successive covenant with Abraham's descendants advanced the original purpose of God seen in the Abrahamic covenant okay so I want you to see this so let's if you've got your Bibles make your way to Exodus chapter 2 and we're gonna look at just a few passages here and the key thing i I want you to see is I want you to see how these coven, covenants are interlocking with each other they're not replacing the one that came before but they're furthering and, in some sense, even fulfilling the one that came before. Okay, so as we go to Exodus chapter 2, we're now kind of in the context now of the Mosaic Covenant. And so let's consider the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant here in Exodus chapter 2, and let's look at verse 23 Okay, so we're here in Exodus. Exodus represents the giving of the Mosaic Covenant. And notice here in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, what is it that leads God to give the Mosaic Covenant? It's really two things. If you look at verse 23, or actually verse 24, the first thing is God heard their groaning. His people are in slavery, they're suffering. He hears that and he has compassion towards that. But then what's the second thing that leads God to give the Mosaic Covenant in verse 24? God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And so notice it is out of the context of God remembering the Abrahamic Covenant that God began to move towards the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, which of course is the key event that leads to the Mosaic Covenant. And so what we see here is that the Mosaic Covenant, when given, is not replacing the Abrahamic Covenant. It's given in view of the Abrahamic Covenant. It's when God remembers the Abrahamic Covenant that he then gives the Mosaic Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant does not replace the Abrahamic Covenant. All right. so next let's consider the Davidic Covenant. So make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is, is primarily, primarily focused on the Lord's covenant with David. And we won't read this whole chapter, but we'll just look at a couple of key verses here. Alright, so with the inauguration of the Davidic covenant... Let's start here in 2 Samuel 7, verse 4. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd the people? Israel saying why have you not built me a house of cedar That will skip now to verse 23 and who is like your people Israel the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its God So we're here, we're in 2 Samuel 7, God is giving the Davidic covenant, and again, notice, looking at verse 6, looking at verse 23, what is the Davidic covenant rooted in? Notice that the covenant comes to David not as something disconnected with the past, God's not saying, all right, I'm going to give you this covenant because the past has been messy. Let's erase the past. Let's forget the past, act like it never happened, and move on. No, that's not what he does at all. That's not how God operates here. Notice that the covenant to David is not disconnected with the past. Rather, the inauguration of the Davidic covenant comes out of the past experiences of God delivering Israel from Egypt. We see that emphasized in verse 6. We see that emphasized in verse 23. And of course, God delivering Israel from Egypt eventually leads to the Mosaic Covenant. And so we see that the Davidic Covenant is given in view of, with the memory of, the Mosaic Covenant. It's tied back to the Mosaic Covenant. So notice what we've seen. We've seen that the Mosaic Covenant is given in view of the Abrahamic covenant, and now we've seen that the Davidic covenant is given in view of the Mosaic covenant. And so what we see is that each new covenant doesn't replace the one that comes before it, but rather it furthers it. It continues it. They're all connected. They're interconnected. Now, let's consider the inauguration of the new covenant. And so make your way to Ezekiel Chapter Thirty Seven. And we're going to look here starting in verse twenty four. Ezekiel 37, 24. You know, so there's a few passages in the Old Testament that give us the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel and Jeremiah in particular, we see the, the, the promise of the new covenant back in Ezekiel 36, and then in Ezekiel 37 we have this familiar story, this powerful story, the valley of the dry bones. And then here in Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 26, says my servant david shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes they shall dwell in the land that i gave to my servant jacob where your fathers lived they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever and david my servant shall be their prince forever i will make a covenant of peace with them it shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. All right, so we're here. It's the inauguration of the new covenant. And Ezekiel's describing the new covenant, and I want you to notice how in verses 24 through 26, Ezekiel combines allusions to the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants with the description and the promise of the new covenant. Okay, so look, where, where in verses twenty-four through twenty-six do you see allusions to the Davidic covenant? And shout out answers if you have. David my servant will be their prince forever. That's right. And so, what verse are you in there? 25. Yeah, twenty-five. So, you see in verse twenty-five an explicit reference to David: "David, my servant, shall be their prince forever." That kind of ties back to the Davidic covenant—the idea that uh, the, the ultimate one who comes to fulfill the covenant will be a son of David. And there's actually one other allusion, I think, here to the Davidic Covenant. Uh, It's a little less explicit, but in verse 24, of course, you see David referenced, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. That that idea of shepherd is, is tied back to David as well. So we've got multiple allusions here to the Davidic Covenant. Do you see any allusions here to the Mosaic Covenant? That's right, and so that is verse 24. So anytime you're thinking about the Bible, you're thinking about the Old Testament, and you hear things like laws and statutes or rules, your mind immediately goes to the Mosaic Covenant. So it says in verse 24, They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. What rules? What statutes? The ones God gave through the Mosaic Covenant. So we see an allusion to the Davidic covenant, actually three. We see an allusion to the Mosaic covenant. And now, where do you see an allusion to the Abrahamic covenant? Verse 25. That's right, verse 25. And what in particular do you see in verse 25? What do you see? What do you see in verse 25 that that connects us to the Abrahamic covenant? Yeah, we've got land. Children's children. So both are immediate, immediate uh, references to the Abrahamic covenant. Centerpiece of the Abrahamic covenant is he's setting, you know, he's setting aside a land for them. And then, of course, the promise goes to you and your children. So verse 25, all that's included there is this Allusion to the Abrahamic Covenant. Okay, so again, reset. This is the giving of the New Covenant. And Ezekiel is combining allusions to the Abrahamic Mosaic and Davidic Covenants in describing the New Covenant. Now, why does he do this? Well, he is revealing that all three of those ancient covenants, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic, in reality, combine into a single divine ordering. And what is that single thing they combine into? Well, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And that's, the, that's new covenant language there. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And so the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenant are combining into a single divine ordering that is expressed through the new covenant. And so we see then that the new covenant has that same structural unity as the covenants that came before. I mean, even in the Old Testament, the new covenant is not presented as some new promise that's disconnected from the previous covenants no even when you see the promise of the new covenant in the Old Testament it's given in view of in remembrance of the previous covenants and so it's not coming along to replace them it's coming along to fulfill them and so the new covenant and all the promises that you find in those other covenants find their consummation in Jesus Christ and so What we've done is we're establishing the unity of the covenants, and we see first that there's this structural unity, which means the covenants are interlocked with each other and furthering and advancing the one that came before. The other thing I want you to see is that there's a thematic unity for these covenants. So not only is there a structural unity, as we've seen, but there's also a thematic unity in these covenants. So what do I mean by, when I say thematic unity? Well, I mean that all the covenants contain the same theme. And in that way, they contain the same purpose. And the unifying theme of the covenant is what O. Palmer Robertson calls the Emmanuel principle. The Emmanuel principle is God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so the Emmanuel principle has two parts to it. God says, I will be your God. So that's the first part. And then the second part is, You will be my people. And what you see is, is that theme, the Emmanuel principle, that theme is associated with the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and the New Covenant. And so let's look at this. I want you to see it. So go back to Genesis now and to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17. So you see, you know, you see the Abrahamic covenant given in multiple iterations in Genesis, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, and then the covenants reissued to Isaac and Jacob. But they're all just different, you know, just different expressions of the same covenant of this Abrahamic covenant. And so, as you make your way to Genesis 17, let's look at verses. 7 through 9. And what we're looking for is the Emmanuel principle. So chapter 17 beginning in verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give To you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Then verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generation. Alright, so remember, the the Emmanuel principle has two parts. Part A, I will be your God. Part B, you will be my people. And you see this here in the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. If you look at verses 7 and 8, you see the first part of the Emmanuel Principle, I will be your God. It says at the end of verse 7, it talks about God, He's going to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and will give to you and to your offspring after you the land for your sojourners, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then of course we see this um, also, part B of the Emmanuel Principle, God, then part B, you will be my people. We see this in verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And so we see here in verses 7 through 9 an expression of the Emmanuel principle. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's at the center of the Abrahamic covenant. Alright, now flip over to Exodus chapter 6. So we're now making our, our way into the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus chapter 6 and we'll look at verse 7 Again, we're, we're looking here for the Emmanuel principle so look with me at Exodus chapter 6 verse 7 I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians And he goes on. So we see there the Emmanuel principle in the Mosaic Covenant. Next flip back to 2 Samuel 7. Now making our way to the Davidic Covenant. 2 Samuel 7. Let's look at verse 14. You see it almost almost verbatim here. Second Samuel seven fourteen. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So you see there verse 14, the Emmanuel principle again. And then, you, you can also see this in... I'll just read to you Ezekiel 34, 24, where you see this. It says, And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So there you kind of see the Emmanuel principle embedded in this kind of remembrance of the Davidic covenant as well. So we see the Emmanuel principle in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, and in the Davidic covenant. Now let's put our attention on the new covenant. So so now focus on Jeremiah 31 Jeremiah 31 has this the beautiful new covenant prophecies let's look at Jeremiah 31 verse 33 I'll actually start reading here in verse 31 So there in verse 33 again you see the Emmanuel principle. I will be your God, you will be my people. Okay? So don't get lost in the weeds. Remember what we're seeing. We're seeing that there's a thematic unity across these covenants. In the covenants in the old but also even in the new covenant. We see this Emmanuel principle. And so you, what does the word Emmanuel mean? God with us. That's right. And who receives the name Emmanuel? Jesus. So Emmanuel means God with us. And who is the Emmanuel? What's well, Jesus? As we see in Matthew 1.23, Jesus receives the name Emmanuel when it says, Behold, she will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so, how is the Emmanuel principle ultimately fulfilled? How is this thematic or purposeful statement across the covenants fulfilled? Well, this thematic unity, the Emmanuel principle, pervades all of the covenants and it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that this theme is fulfilled. And that's why Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 42.6, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. That's prophesying about the Messiah. The Messiah is given as a covenant for the people. And so the unifying focus of the covenants comes together completely in Jesus Christ. And so then the question is, as we start to wrap up for this morning, then the question is exactly how does Jesus, Emmanuel, unify the covenants? Well, when Jesus shed His blood on the cross, remember, it was the blood of the new covenant. That's what Jesus says in Luke twenty-two twenty. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. And so that means then, through faith in Christ as the Messiah, as through faith in Christ as the substitute for your sin, you receive the promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. And you have to see... That the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants are all pointing to this reality of the new covenant which is fulfilled in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so we see this structural unity in the covenants and we also see this thematic unity in the covenants. And so I'll close here just with a, a book recommendation. If you're interested in diving deeper into covenant theology or being introduced to covenant theology. There's a lot of books and it's sometimes hard to know. know, uh, I would recommend though O. Palmer Robertson's book, The Christ of the Covenants. I've kind of given you just a sketch of covenant theology here. If you want to dive deeper I would recommend that. So what our plan is going forward in in this uh, this Sunday School class that will continue meeting in this room for April. So we're calling it Studies in Biblical Theology. And so now that we've got kind of an overarching framework for the scriptures, this, this covenant theology which is so central to how we here at Trinity view the scriptures. We're going to be doing some studies in biblical theology. Uh, Gage Crowder is going to be teaching that class the next couple of weeks and then on April 24th we have a special guest. uh, Pastor Rich Lusk is going to be here preaching and teaching Sunday school and he's also going to do a study in biblical theology as well. So that's where we're headed in in the next several uh, weeks for this April Sunday school. So we do have a few minutes if anyone wants to make uh, observations, ask questions, or or, or issue comments. We can do that for a couple of minutes here before we we wrap up. Beth? Um, Early on you said God always relates to, would you say, His people? people? Hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, let's think through this together here, shall we? This will be fun. Yes, Beth asked... Referring back to earlier when I said that God always uh, enters into relationship with his people through covenant, she then asked, does God relate to all people through covenant? Uh, so then we'd have to ask, okay, uh, you've got two, two categories here. You've got the, the covenant people and those who are not the covenant people. The Covenant people, of course, uh, are redeemed of the Lord. Uh, The people who are not part of the covenant or who reject the covenant are not redeemed of the Lord. So then they have some relationship with God, you know, an estranged child has some relationship with their father, right? It's a relationship defined by hate and rebellion. So those children who are, or those people who are outside of the covenant of grace have some relationship to God. I guess we could say that relationship is defined by the covenant line. Namely, they're outside of it because of their willful rejection of the Lord. You know. Um, and, then, and maybe you could also say, and again, I admit I've not thought about this a ton. That's why I said let's think about this together. Um, but you could also then say when you look at, say, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you see the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. So there are those who receive the covenant sign. There are those within the covenant who eventually come to reject it. And they then are... You know, they receive the cursings of the covenant, so it's almost like they're you know the judgment of God, the cursings of God are coming down through these covenant obligations as well. So then, I guess you'd have to then say, is there a way to define it in such a way that those that covenant obligation of the curses extends even to those who were never a part of the covenant at all through you know? What about
1: Noah? Does that covenant that seems like it extends to all
0: people? Yeah. That's true. That includes all people. It's a, it's a God, God-given covenant to preserve the earth, right? Including those who are not explicitly in the Abrahamic covenant, for example. Right, that's a good point. Certainly that part of the covenant is covering everyone. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, and I wonder if Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20, has something to say to that? Because he kind of does some of that there. I'll read it out loud. so that the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our our behalf." So there is a distinction between a covenant and a promise. And it does seem the covenants have particular qualities attached to them like a sign. You know, a covenant has the sign and the seal aspect to it where maybe the promises don't always have a sign. Noahic covenant, the sign of, you know, the rainbow. The mosaic covenant, the sign of blood across the the door, and so on. So so I think that might be one of the distinguishing characteristics, you know, the covenant... The covenants are called everlasting, you know. Um, so, so they certainly, you know, the covenants have that everlasting quality to it. It depends on the promise, you know. I, I would be, I would be nervous to make a blanket judgment on that because, you know, it, it, what are we thinking of here? A promise? You know, th- there's a lot of different promises in a lot of different contexts, and some might be very situational. Think of the proverbs, you know. Uh, that's a very situational thing. So, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be nervous to speak on it like that. Yeah. All right. Let's. Flip. We got time for one or two more comments before we wrap up, Larson.
1: Oh, I was just going to say that the definition I learned of covenant was uh, a self-maledictory oath with attendant blessings and curses. Mm-hmm. So there's 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 a little bit more to that than just a promise. It's a it's an oath where God's saying you know or, or whoever's making the promise you know to cut a covenant. It wasn't just hey I promise I'll show up and be there. To cut a covenant was to say may may I become like these, this animal that's cut in half if I break my promise. But there's also blessings and curses that come with this promise, you know, keeping it versus breaking it. Yep. So there is, a, there is a, I would think, a, there's, a lot, there's a lot more going on in a covenant than, than just a, a promise. Right, and
0: you see that, of course, Genesis 15, verses 6 through 15, you know, they, they get all the animals, the, the birds and so forth, And the, the, the flaming torch goes between them, that's representing God, and he's, you know, in this formal uh, treaty ceremony, he's basically saying, be done unto me, as is done to these birds, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant. That's, that's the self-maledictory oath that, that Larson's referring to there. And then kind of tied to that, you mentioned the word cut, you know. The biblical covenants that God makes with his people are a bond in blood. You know, there is shed blood um, there. So, um, and, and so again, that, that, that does heighten the level uh, from a mere promise I was just going to say, and, and Chris Wiley,
1: when he talks about like living you think about living in an in ancient world you know in, in a in a wilderness kind of setting, how a covenant you know you were making a covenant say with your neighbors that I will come protect you i 'll come defend you if you get attacked you know may I be killed if i don 't show up to, to protect you when that ha- so there, there was a so the the kind of covenant community you know that you have scripturally, and it's ongoing, ongoing obligations. It's it's a, it's a yeah. There's an ongoing obligation. It's not just like a like a temporary alliance sort of thing. It's like a it's a life or death, and that's and that's
0: the I think that's the context mm-hmm. that we have in scripture too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Larson. All right. It is about time to wrap up. Just one real quick. Yeah. yeah
1: very popular saying that no plan survives contact
0: with the Yeah, It seems like God's plans are always one way or the other fulfilled by contact with the enemy. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good point. Good. Yeah, you yeah. see especially in Acts 4 27 through 28, I think when you see the crucifixion of Christ, the sinful deeds of Pilate and so forth was falling under the umbrella of God's providence. Yeah, he's using this for good. Yeah, that's a good way to end. Let's close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for your word. We thank you for the promises that we have in your son Jesus Christ and the new covenant of his blood that is ours through faith. Uh, we thank you for our children's Sunday school teachers that have been teaching uh, during this past hour and pray that your blessings would be on them. And as we prepare now our hearts for worship in the in the next few minutes, I pray that you would help us to worship. You would join gladness this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website. At Trinity Reformed That's Trinity Reformed K-I-R-K, dot com.